My name is Shing. I work here at Church on Mill with the college ministry, and I focus primarily in on the uh, international students here at ASU. And it's my joy to be able to share God's word with you this morning. We'll be in Mark chapter 10 this morning, so if you go ahead and flip there while I get some water. That's much better. One of the fun things about working with international students on a weekly basis is the is the little dance we do when we accidentally use an idiom. You know, you, you use an idiom and you get this head nod, right? And then the realization that, that the words were processed, but yet there's this empty look of, I know what you said, but I'm not actually quite sure of what you said. We play with these idioms in our international group. We have icebreakers based on them. It becomes a contest for students. You know, we we ask them to correctly parse the idioms that we read aloud. It's quite entertaining, I assure you. Even for myself, I I realize I know nothing. (laughs) But have you ever dug into some of the possible origins of the idioms that we use? It's fascinating. For instance, in the weeds has its origins in aviation, possibly. Landing strips sometimes are simply grass fields that are mowed to the appropriate length. And many private airstrips are like this today. If you drive out, it probably doesn't happen here in Arizona because there's no grass, right? Um, But in the Midwest, you drive out and you're wondering, why is there this random, like, strip of grass? It's for airplanes. And if an aircraft lands and manages to go off the end of the strip or off to the side, they would be in the weeds, right? Another possible origin of in the weeds is actually from the Prohibition era. You know, alcohol for uh, these, you know, illegal speakeasies were not stored within the confines of the premises because if the authorities came and raided you, all your alcohol would be gone, So where do you store this illegal alcohol? You would take advantage of the weeds and brushes out back. All the alcohol would be hidden out back, so that would be difficult to find. And when your speakeasy started to run low on alcohol, you would send someone out to the weeds and bushes to go rustle up some more. But inevitably, the person who would get sent out would have some difficulty finding what he needed Or he found what he needed, but he got turned around in the weeds and brush, and thus, the saying, he got lost in the weeds. And to be sure that we're all on the same page in our modern usage of this phrase, we understand in the weeds to mean getting bogged down with the details, missing the item of most importance. And for our passage this morning, this is of utmost concern for us. Before we begin to apply this idea, let's first read the passage. And again, our passage is in Mark chapter 10. We're in verses 13 to 16, and in the blue Bible in front of you, that's on page 493 if you haven't found it already. So I'll read here from Mark chapter 10, and this is the word of the Lord. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, 
Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as we look here at the beginning of the passage, we see Mark setting the scene for us, right? What we see are probably fathers bringing children to Jesus so that he would bless them. And from the text, it's not clear what is being meant by children. Maybe we're talking about 10-year-olds, but maybe we're also talking about 10-day-olds. It's not specified. And I'm sure we all have this mental picture of what's happening as we read this, right? But from the context of Jesus taking them into his arms, we can assume that it is likely these children are are small and maybe like toddlers. If we look at other accounts of this event, Luke seems to indicate that it is indeed the case that parents are bringing their young children, their toddlers, to Jesus. And parents bringing children to Jesus is understandable. Parents, at the very least, were expecting to receive a blessing from this wonderful teacher, this rabbi that they have heard so much about. And this would not have been outside the normal tradition of Judaism at the time that a blessing would be asked for children. If we look just at the end of this passage, right, Jesus actually fulfills this expectation eventually. But we also know that Jesus has shown throughout that his touch, much can happen through his touch, as indicated by numerous healings that he has performed. We can think back to Mark chapter 5 and the woman who had a discharge and that she snuck through the crowd so that she could touch Jesus and be healed. So on the part of the parents, they're probably hearing the news of what Jesus is doing. There might be an expectation that Maybe Jesus could do something miraculous with their children. And this desire of the parents seems innocuous enough, right? So why did the disciples, instead of responding in a welcoming manner, slam the door on the parents and the children? Why would the disciples rebuke the parents like Jesus rebukes the evil spirits? It's actually quite disappointing to think that the closest followers of Jesus, the ones that have been so blessed, that they're the ones that is making it difficult, and that they're the ones that are throwing up walls and preventing others from coming to Jesus. But maybe we can try to paint this in the, the best of lights, right? Give people the benefit of the doubt, give the disciples the benefit of the doubt. Maybe the disciples are simply trying to be helpful. Maybe it, maybe it wasn't, you know, totally, totally an angry kind of thing they were doing. They're trying to be helpful. Maybe they're like a bouncer, just trying to regulate the flow of traffic, you know, keeping Jesus from the mass crowds who are all vying for a piece of his time and attention. I mean, indeed, Jesus is becoming famous, right? But he really needs to stay on track with his public teaching. We also know that Jesus has this habit of wanting to leave the crowds at times and go off in a quiet place. So, so maybe the disciples were simply, you know, trying to give Jesus some alone time. 
But the actions shown here by the disciples are actually pretty predictable if we're aware of the general culture in regards to children. In the broader culture of the time, children had zero social status. Zero. They were not deemed to have any particular significance at all. Children could one day have significance once they grew up and were able to work and produce some value for the family. But when they were young, children, they were simply there. They were seen, but not truly valued. It's the same logic that drives the disciples' behavior here. The children simply were not worth the time and effort. Not worth the time and effort. But as we read, when Jesus saw all of this happening before him, he was indignant. He was annoyed. He was exasperated. He was angry at this ridiculous and unjust act that his disciples had just performed. And then Jesus goes and does exactly the opposite of what the disciples had expected. In the very last verse, verse 16, Jesus does exactly what the parents had hoped he would do all along, which is to touch them, and, bring, and he brings all the children into his arms, and he blesses them. What is Jesus doing here, right? He's simply trying to annoy his disciples. You know, I, I like to be kind of a troll, too. I like to poke people where, you know, they hate to be poked. But in the process of all this, what Jesus is doing is that he is providing a picture as to the work that he was here on this earth to accomplish. He provides a picture of the kingdom that he was bringing, the same kingdom his rule and reign that was announced all the way back in Mark chapter 1. I think it's important to note that the attitude Jesus shows towards children is significant, especially in a culture where children had zero social standing. <clears throat> in our current cultural moments, this is of importance for us, too, as children are often painted as an inconvenience. And I've heard oftentimes of, you know, some of the ladies who are expecting people saying, oh, your life is going to end, you know, you don't know what's coming. <laughs> right? That is what the culture tells us. Children hamper the trajectory of our careers. They are a resource suck. They prevent me from retiring early, prevent me from true enjoyment in this life. Children eat up all the money, and I say this quite literally as my boys last month were going through like three gallons of milk a week, you know, and with inflation, that's a lot of money. <laughs> I will say, with my youngest son, we pulled the bottle, and then he's on a milk strike right now, so it's helpful financially, <laughs> but not for his health. But yet we see that Jesus does pay attention to the children, right? And he cares for them enough that he welcomes them and he carries them into his arms. 
And this is a countercultural attitude that we ought to continue today and that we all should jump in and love and care for these tiny humans who are created in the image of God. And it's such an incredible thing that our children, or our church is full of children, right? It's a blessing to be able to learn from other parents here, and it's such a blessing to be able to get a tangible glimpse of the love and care shown to us by God Himself. And to come back to our idiom discussion, right? And here's the spot where it's, it would be easy for us to get lost in the weeds and simply focus on the children. We all love children, right? We're supposed to love children, so let's focus on children. If you get lost in focusing on the fact that Jesus paid any attention to the children even, and maybe in your own experience, maybe you even heard some sermons on this very passage that dove headfirst into the children, I mean, they sat and talked about children the rest of the time. I mean, it's easy for us to walk away and look at the text and just, you know, lift our heads out of the text and, and think, ah, yes, we guys got to do better and, and welcome the children. Well, yes, the focus on children is important. And while it's important that we shed ourselves of the proclivity to be dull, disciple-like, you know, in our thought patterns and our behaviors, we must not miss the main point in this passage. The main point in this passage is when Jesus states in verse 14, For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And this is the main thrust of the passage, not the children. The main thrust is Jesus is proclaiming that the kingdom of God is not how everyone expects it to be. And even as I say this, we must be careful to not get lost in this as well and think that to enter the kingdom of God, we must be a child, right? The key word is, for to such as these... And that the kingdom must be received like a child. And Jesus' disciples knew that children had zero social standing. And it's why the disciples shoo them away. But at the same time, Jesus knew that as well. And he made it a point to show that this is how God's kingdom works. That the kingdom belongs not to those who have worked for it, and not to those who have a certain social status, and not to those who had any great reputation. Rather, the kingdom belongs to those who are simply a humble, needy, dependent, knowing that they have nothing to offer, no way to even attempt to transact God's grace. The kingdom is for those who are powerless and know that they are in need of a great, kind, and merciful Savior. You can simply look back to the prior chapters of the Gospel of Mark and realize that Jesus' disciples totally needed to understand this exact lesson, that the kingdom does not come by reputation or status. 
You think back to Mark chapter 9, verse 33, we see that Jesus catches the disciples saying some dumb, prideful, and presumptuous things. If you look back there, and you can just imagine with me, right, even, that Jesus and his disciples were walking along to Capernaum. You think the disciples were tagging along, you know, in the back, they're just snickering and poking at each other as they sought to figure out who's the greatest one of them all, right? We do that in the office all the time. Brandon and I, we, we kind of make fun of each other like that, right? I'm sure you guys have that banter going on in your office, your workplace. And as they're arguing about this, right, who is greatest? They were assuming that each and every one of them had status, They all believed that they brought something valuable to the table. They all thought that it must have been something within each of them that Jesus had noticed, and that's why they were chosen to be his disciples. But Jesus corrects them, saying, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And interestingly enough, brings a child along there to make a point to them then. And on the back of this event, we see just a few verses later, more evidence of the disciples' haughtiness. Mark 9, 38, John speaks up and says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So they stopped another person casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Not only that, you know, I think if you did something like that, you would probably try to keep it under wraps, but no. They bring the news of their deed back to Jesus, almost expecting to receive a high five or a pat on the back, and great work, right? In their words, we tried to stop him because he was not following us. They were thinking that their exclusive group was at the top of the ladder, that they were the bringers of the kingdom, that they were the great ones. Instead, they're corrected by Jesus as he says, do not stop him, for the one who is not against us is for us. There are other instances of this as well, like when the disciples rebuke Jesus after he shares that he must suffer many things and be rejected. Jesus' death would not fit their picture of grandeur status, reputation. Jesus being killed would totally pop a bubble in their expectations of what the kingdom would be like. And additionally, disciples fail to drive out a demon, which in turn causes huge commotion, and Jesus has to come and rectify the situation. Disciples wind up in such a situation because they think that simply being associated with Jesus, that they're able to do many great things that they would have power and ability to even drive out demons without actually relying on God. And I don't want to jump too far into next week's passage and step on Mike's toes, but the lesson seems to continue there as well. A rich young man comes and claims that he has followed all the commandments and is then subsequently challenged to sell his possessions. The man goes away disappointed And to his disciples' great amazement, Jesus says it would be very difficult for someone like this 
rich, young ruler to enter the kingdom of God. Rich, young ruler. Sounds like status and reputation to me. And the disciples' minds were blown. And it is against this backdrop that Jesus instructs his disciples then and instructs us today through pointing out children. And this instruction is telling us that Jesus is continuing to turn the expectations upside down and shows that it is not through any particular standing or status that one possesses that allows them to enter into the kingdom. But the kingdom belongs to those who receive it like a child, one with nothing to give, nothing to offer, and one with no particular prestige. I think for some of us, as we linger on Jesus' teaching, we, we get this, right? We get it. And maybe parents and those maybe who have taken care of young children in the past will be like, absolutely, right? Maybe even some of those who your personal, you know, conversion just re- really revolves around this, this passage, and you totally understand the point being made, but I think for others, we might be like idioms, right? We're acknowledging the words and maybe some of the meaning of this, but not fully feeling the weight of what the passage is saying. So maybe to help, let's think about children here for a moment. As a relatively new father, uh, I'm still learning much every day, even last night, Um, and as someone who did not have much experience with young children previously, I had to learn a lot when I had my first child. I had to learn how to properly hold a bottle so that I could feed my child so he wouldn't go hungry. I had to learn how to change a diaper. (laughs) It gets better. I had to learn how to change my child's diaper and clothes when we had a blowout with the highest priority of not getting extra stuff everywhere else, right? I had to learn how to properly plug my child into the car seat when we need to go to the doctor or to the store. I had to learn how to hold my child since young children are all sorts of floppy, right? And I had to learn how to swaddle my child so that his involuntary reflexes don't wake him up at night, right? They go like this and they wake themselves up and then you can't sleep. I had to learn about child carriers. Those things are wonderful, by the way. Um, But you have to learn how to put them in so they're they're not injured, but also so that they're comfy and that they don't complain. You know, that's why you have them in the carrier. You want them to be happy, and then you can go along with everything else you need to do. And then as my children grew, I had to learn about how do I encourage my child to move and to roll over and to walk. I had to learn how to deal with the bumps and bruises a child receives once they learn how to walk because they run... They want to run, and then they run, and they can't really run, and they run into things, right? And all sort of crazy things happen. And even more specifically, as I said last night, I learned that if your kids watch the TV show Bluey, you might need to tell them, do not try the same karate moves off your bed in the dark because you will knock your teeth out. (laughs) It was a rough night last night. I've also learned about bedtime routines so that my children would be better prepared to go to bed. I learned that they need noise machines to encourage good sleep. I learned that they need nightlights because they get scared of the dark. I learned that you can't just give food to a baby. You actually got to cook it down really good so they can like smush it up, right? Like, man, so many extra steps. 
And then on top of that, you learn and you recognize, oh, they're about to get sick. I should do something. Oh, maybe I should give them meds tonight so I can sleep and not be woken up middle of the night. And now that one of my kids is almost seven years old, I've had to learn how to parent and show them the ways of obedience, even though he already knows everything, <laughs> right? In the past few weeks, I've been learning how to shepherd my son through the disappointments in life. We all got COVID and we had to cancel our trip, right? And I say all this, that I've had to learn to do these things, not because I'm seeking to be the all-star parent. I learned all these things simply because of the fact that this is all necessary for life. Children are dependent upon their parents for everything. There is not one thing they can do on their own. They are helpless. And even when these children begin to grow up, there is so much instruction and assistance that they still need in order to survive in this world. And crazy enough, Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. If you do not receive the kingdom like a child, you cannot enter it. The kingdom is not for those who are wanting to enter in by their own works or piousness. The kingdom of God is not for those who want to, want to enter based upon their status in life and not for those who think that their reputation will open the doors of heaven for them. Rather, the kingdom is for the complete opposite, furthest away from what we think. The kingdom is actually for those who would be willing to receive it, receive it humble and needy. The kingdom of God cannot be earned. It can only be received like a humble, needy child who is unable to do anything at all. And they can only rely on someone else. And this is the message that Jesus is giving here. And this is the message that is found throughout the rest of the New Testament, right? For instance, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, it's a free gift of God. There's nothing there that tells us that our works or status or reputation have any bearing on the salvation being offered to us in Christ. It's a gift meant for us to be received humbly. We also think of Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, this is not of our own doing. It's not a result of our works. It's not a result of our intellect. It's not of a result of our righteousness or inherent goodness. No, it's about humbly receiving the, the grace, receiving the gift that is being offered to you. There's a recent survey conducted by the Cultural Research Center here in Arizona, 
And it revealed that the underlying belief that many of us Americans possess is contrary to what Jesus is teaching here in Mark chapter 10. One of the beliefs that this worldview survey found was that American adults today increasingly adopt a salvation-can-be-earned perspective, with half holding to the belief that if a person is generally good or does enough good things during their life, they will earn a place in heaven. More interestingly, only one-third of adults would outright disagree with such a thought. And lastly, only one-third of adults who are polled believe they will go to heaven solely because of confessing their sins and embracing Jesus as their Savior. Scary. And even as we hear this, we could probably point to a variety of issues as to why the things are the way they are. Maybe, you know, we can even think, well, maybe there's something wrong with the methodology and definitions of the survey here. It's not really getting at what, you know, it's trying to get at. But at the very least, I think the survey does seem to reveal, at least there's a, there's a little indication of the attitudes of the culture around us, right? It's not too hard to see why some of these works and status and reputation-based beliefs are getting mixed in with the gospel. Not too hard to see why maybe some of the American adults believe this. I mean, we do live in an achievement-based, status-based culture, right? And unfortunately, in our Western culture, what we do and what we provide is inextricably linked with our reputation and status. From early on in school, we're told to achieve, achieve, and achieve, and that's how we are graded, and that's how we are seen and viewed. And then we're told that we need to list all these achievements in our college applications, right, so we can get into good schools and get great scholarships. And then we're a coach to put, you know, our status as a, part, as a participant in this wonderful and prestigious university system on our job resumes, right? Then as we progress in our jobs, we're told that we need to build our reputation, list the tens of thousands of dollars that we sell so that we can get a promotion, or we talk about the grand success of a project we led as we interview with people, or even as we're talking with people, we name drop, right, thinking that it would enhance our reputation. Again, we're projecting that we are something. We're projecting that we are someone, that we bring something to the table. This is all of life. Right? Even think about our social media, like, we're culture because I've taken 10 pictures in 10 different countries, right? Or that I just bought a nice house in a nice neighborhood. I have great status and reputation now. Ultimately, this is just how the messed up human heart works. Like We, we want to earn our way with our works, our, our reputation, and our status, and we want to enter the kingdom through our perceived self-importance because it is easier, and then we can control it. We must be aware that this is the farthest thing from the gospel. It's the farthest thing what Jesus is saying here. We must certainly be sure as to not mix any bit of what the culture tells us with the gospel. And instead, one of the aims of our daily walk would be to cultivate an attitude, a heart posture that points to our own insignificance, that points to our own inability, 
It points to our own sinfulness. It points to our own neediness. We ought to truly pray as Jesus taught us to pray, that we are in need of Him, that we need to come to Him for our daily bread, but even more that we would come to Him for the forgiveness of our sin. It's easy to pray and say, I am needy because I need bread. But it's harder to come to Jesus and say the same thing as, I need forgiveness of my sin. As we do that, as we remind ourselves of our own neediness, we must also remind ourselves of a great God who is kind and merciful and gracious And he is one who receives those who are in need. We ought to remind ourselves of the story of the gospel and that the only thing we contribute to our salvation is sin. The sin and shame that Jesus himself bore on the cross satisfying the wrath of God. But that also in rising again, he validates the offer of true life given to us and that he gives us righteousness and welcomes us into his family calling us his children. There's a preacher named Alistair Begg who gives a wonderful illustration of what receiving the kingdom looks like. And maybe you've come across it before on social media, but I bring it up because it captures this passage well. And maybe afterward, when you go home this afternoon, try to maybe pull it up. You might be more impacted than me just telling you this, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. But this story, this illustration, just captures my attention each and every time I see it. And it's probably because I need the reminder that it is only through faith in Christ that I am saved. Nothing that I bring saves me. But this is what he says. He says, think about the thief on the cross I cannot wait to find him and ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were cussing out the guy with your friend, you are never in a Bible study, you are never baptized, you don't know a thing about church membership, and yet you made it. How did you make it? Alistair Begg goes on and, and paints this picture of this thief arriving at the gates of heaven and the angel is there to greet him. And the angel must have said, like, what are you doing here? And the thief, and all he can say is, well, I I don't know. The angel says, what do you mean, I I don't know? And the thief, all he can do is continue to stutter and say, well, because I really don't know. And the angel says, well, let me get my supervisor, right? (laughs) So the supervisor angel comes and asks, a few questions. One of the questions is, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? And the thief says, I've never heard of it in my life. Well, how about the doctrine of Scripture? You surely know something about that. And the thief is just staring, and in frustration, the angel finally asks, so on what basis are you here? And the thief said, The man on the middle cross said, I could come. 
Now Sir Begg continues and says, If I don't continue to preach the gospel to myself all day and every day, I will begin to trust myself, trust my experience. If I take my eyes off the cross, I can only give lip service to the efficacy and at the same time live as if my salvation depends upon me. We are not saved by good works. We are not saved by our professions. We are saved by only what Christ has achieved. So if you go to the age-old question, it says, if you were to die tonight and you're getting entrance into heaven, what would you say? If you had that answer pegged in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believe, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. The only proper answer answer is in the third person because he because he so church the challenge for us is that we would indeed indeed keep saying he he and not I and let us nurture that right attitude each and every day, remind ourselves of our neediness and not our worthiness. And let's do so with the knowledge that all of us are in the same boat together where we have zero to boast about. And let us not step into conversations with an air of self-importance, not a mindset where we are trying to impress, not a mindset where we are trying to portray that we are doing just fine and that we're okay. But rather, let's all gather around the fact that we are needy, needy of a Savior. Let us humble ourselves before that wonderful Savior who offers us grace freely, For anyone visiting here with us this morning, and for anyone who doesn't profess to be a Christian, I want to acknowledge that oftentimes we as Christians get it all wrong. And it might seem that we are relying on what we are bringing to the table, that we are relying on our reputations, and that we're relying on our status, and that we're just simply gathering here to one-up each other and prove how righteous we are to one another. I sincerely say, do not walk away thinking that you must bring something to the table. Instead, receive God's grace like a child. Receive the offer of true life found in Christ Jesus and walk into his arms. And for us as Christians, we do that on a daily basis as well. Don't be deluded into thinking it is because of our reputation and our status or anything that we have done that we have gotten into the kingdom. We have nothing to offer. That God has mercifully and wonderfully saved us, not by our own doing, but because he is a kind God. And as we finish, I know I just read a huge, huge quote, but just one more quote and a short and it's from the Puritan pastor, Samuel Rutherford. I think it sums up everything that Jesus is saying here in Mark 10. 
Here's the quote. Be humbled, walk softly. Stoop, stoop. It is a low entry to go in at heaven's gate. Let's pray. Father, simply ask that you would help us indeed see that it is a low entry at heaven's gate, that you would help us stoop, that you would help us walk softly, that you would indeed humble us, that we come to realize that, God, we have nothing to offer in terms of gaining our salvation, but that, Father, you have asked us to simply receive because you have accomplished the good work. Father, we ask that you help us do that. Help us do it by the reading of your word, by the community we have here at Church on Mill, through our brothers and sisters, that we would point, point back to the cross. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.